All right. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Mikai Robertson. I am a research fellow at the Climate and Sustainability Program at ODI, the Global Affairs Think Tank. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome our four speakers, our global um, online audience, and here in ODI, our audience as well. Pleasure to, to see you all to, after, to this afternoon's panel on climate and mobility, um, which I have to emphasize is being co-convened um, by the International Organization on Migration, um, ILM, uh, and the Center for Global Development, uh, CDG, uh, CGD. Um, colleagues, as, as many of you no doubt are aware of, we're in an absolute emergency. Sometimes I have a feeling we feel climate is a latent emergency. It's always on the back burner, but we are still for sure on an emergency, a climate emergency. Um, we made some incremental progress in the context of COP28 as it related to some outcomes. So first of all, the outcome on loss and damage um, fund and funding arrangements um, included a number of mentions to climate mobility um, in different aspects. So for example, in the scope of the fund, uh, that is quite clearly in the scope as opposed to other funds which never had that in that scope and actually tried to shy away from the discussions on climate mobility, especially given perceived risks to the to social risk and, and the safeguards that are attached to it. Uh, in addition to that, um, COP28 also created a space for coordination of complementarity and coherence as it relates to um, loss and damage and migration um, and, and mobility organizations like uh, the International Organization on Mobility is also included in this high-level dialogue. So to a lesser extent as well, COP came out with a discussion on what is called the Just Transition. Uh, the UAE um, Just Transition Work Program uh, was adopted and it has a focus on an area that is a little less trodden in the context of climate mobility and I guess more on the positive um, side and how we can use the creation of, I think it's decent and quality work uh, and how we go about um, integrating migration policies in the context of that. Uh, so there are opportunities as well in climate mobility. And I do think that when discussing with colleagues um, before we started this, this, um, this session, um, and, and, and when they highlighted that, I was like, ah, that's a, you know, a light bulb moment. You know, people don't really talk about the opportunities in the context of climate mobility. Uh, that's on the side of climate action. And not only is it only to focus on low emission development, but climate resilient development also is very important on that side. Uh, so what are we focusing on today? As I highlighted, it's climate and mobility. And so we are discussing migration um, and we already know it's occurring as a response to climatic events. So this is where the loss and damage angle and the adaptation angle happens. The impact of climate crisis is also eroding people's ability and resources to move proactively and safely. Uh, so we know that supportive laws and policies to enable such mobility and to support receiving communities is very important. We also need to think about those who are unable to move. And again, this is an idea coming from a, a lot of interaction with the colleagues, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, right? And so the involuntary immobile is, is the term that I see as group often ignored by the global north discourse that becomes preoccupied with crisis narratives and climate refugees. Um, as many of you are aware, this is a highly complex area that combines negatives and positives. So you have um, displacement and migration can increase or decrease risk depending on the context. 
You have um, migration that is planned and actively chosen as a form of adaptation can have many benefits. So the topic of labor migration is one of the positives that is perhaps most overlooked. Uh, so I could have a, also a discussion on migration uh, as it relates to urban centers and also how critically and um, crucial and important that is. Um, as we look at the different pressures that our leaders, city leaders, and, and how do we push solutions and how do you deal with that and integrate that into our planning. Uh, all that said, I think that equally as important as discussing all of these interventions is how to get them funded, uh, which, is, which is quite crucial and important. And then the last part is how do we ensure effectiveness and impact, right? And we can't forget that. So all that said, I have the duty now of introducing our amazing speakers, noting that today we're focusing on the implications for policymakers and particularly how we move from evidence, as the title says, to action um, in this broad area. So firstly, we have Dr. Coco Warner. Um, Coco is the director of the IOM's um, Global Data Institute, uh, which brings together IOM's expertise on data collection, analysis, and sharing uh, migration data governance, forecasting, among others. COCA has worked in the UN for over 16 years prior to the IOM um, in December 2022, uh, uh, directing research on climate change and migration, uh, climate risk management at the UN's university, um, before joining the Secretariat to the UNFCCC, which is the Climate Change Convention, uh, to supervise climate impacts, vulnerabilities, uh, risk, uh, policy uh, work streams um, in the areas of adaptation. And Dr. Um, Coco Warner, who is a PhD in economics from the University of Vienna. So I just want to quickly welcome Dr. Coco Warner. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, our sec pan second panelist is Dr. Mark um, Tibuth. Uh, Mark is an interdisciplinary uh, social scientist who research um, addresses issues related to how people and populations respond to and adapt to risk arising primarily from environmental change. Mark's work was a particular focus and has a particular focus rather on human mobility and forced displacement, vulnerability, resilience and adaptation, as well as uh, disaster risk reduction uh, Mark has worked in many um, countries around the world with a strong focus on the Greater Horn of Africa uh, and South Asia. Uh, he is a theme leader uh, in the Tyndall uh, Center for Climate Change Research and is the leading, uh, he's leading the center's research on how to achieve well-being through meaningful action on climate change. Uh, in addition, he's the theme lead uh, for climate at UEA initiative uh, focusing on the 2020s uh, as the critical uh, climate decade uh, and co-leads the critical decade for climate change doctoral scholars program. Uh, Mark um, co-convenes uh, the University of East Anglia's Master in Climate Change and Global Development and teaches on both uh, undergrad as well as postgrad courses covering issues linked to the governance of natural resources, climate change, and migration. So I'd like to welcome as well, uh, Mark. So if you can give him a round of applause. Our third panelist joins us from across the pond, uh, from the US. 
um, Sarah Rosengartner uh, is the Deputy Managing Director of the Global Center for Climate Mobility. Uh, she oversees the GCCM's regional initiative in Africa and the Greater Caribbean, as well as the Global Knowledge Hub with the, the um, Columbia University's Climate School. Sarah is a fellow of the Zulberg Institute for Migration and Mobility at the New School and serves as a lecturer at Columbia School for International and Public Affairs. She previously held advisory roles with the Mayor's Migration Council, Open Societies Foundation, the Elders, Columbia's Global Policy um, Initiative, the German Agency for International Cooperation, GIZ, and the Special Representative of the U of UN Secretary General on Migration. Uh, throughout her work, she has focused on improving on um, cooperation on and the governance of international migration. So I'd like us to give a round of applause for um, Sarah. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. And last but surely not least, Claire, uh, she's the Senior Research um, Fellow here at ODI. Claire works in ODI Europe's team, leading research and public affairs work on the subject of migration, coordinates several research portfolios, including a well-developed um, country series on the subject of political narratives and political attitudes towards migration across Europe, as well as working on the topic of labor migration. She's, the leading, she's leading the development of a new research series that looks at the role of, mi of migrant workers across the workforce for the green transition in Europe, a topic which we'll be looking at today. So I'd like us to also give a round of applause to Claire. Uh, and before delving straight in, please rest assured that there will be time um, for Q&As with the panel uh, and we'll be joining. And if you're joining online, please do enter your question in the chat at any point along with your name, organization, and country, and our team will pass it on to you. Uh, we encourage you to tweet uh, and post about the event on social media using the hashtag, hashtag climate mobility, and tagging um, ODI underscore global uh, at Twitter. And the last sort of note is Coco will have to leave us at, at least um, 15 minutes early due to her travel commitments. Thank you, everyone. So what we'll do is just go straight into the questions that we have for the panelists, uh, noting that if you can keep your answers to around three minutes, if possible. Uh, so I'll go to the first area of questions, um, which look at research and practice. Uh, so Coco, um, tell us about the key trends and projections for the impact of climate change on human mobility. Uh, and what does this mean for the communities affected by climate change? Great, thank you so much. And Mikhai, and for those of you online or here who contributed to the success at COP28, congratulations. It may feel like um, a mixed congratulations because you're so right. We are really up against reality. It used to be, even when I was working at UNFCCC, let's say just after the Paris Agreement, it felt like, ah, oh, climate change impacts, they're definitely coming, but they're far away. And they're certainly not here where I live, happening to people that I love or that I know. And I think all of us um, in different ways really feel that climate change impacts are here and it's not far away, either in terms of time or space. Now we're seeing some of those data signals in in our data iom has set up a global data institute and we're so lucky because we are 
all over the world working with communities, um, gathering data so that looks like sex, age, nationality, needs. Our data informs almost all of humanitarian needs assessment, and that is a tremendous responsibility and privilege um, to be talking with people who have been displaced, their host communities, migrants on the move, and finding out what are the patterns, what do people need. So this is what we're seeing all over the world, not far away, sometimes far away. Um, there are broadly three things that drive population movement. Um, biophysical risks and certainly climate change impacts dovetail into that. You'll know that from Tyndall and the very wonderful UK Met Service and our very wonderful IPCC. Those biophysical risks, thanks to our natural scientists and social scientists, are well enough documented. And we certainly see those in what people are, are moving today. Um, often heat, drought, unseasonable weather, too much rain, too little, wrong timing, as I mentioned, affect, directly affect people's livelihoods, whether they're raising crops, herding animals, fishing. This year off the coast of South America, fisher folk have been pulling up hauls of fish that they don't usually see. Fish also migrate. They also respond to sea surface temperature. Um, and this manifests in livelihood. So happily through IPCC and that big literature assessment process, those biophysical risks are fairly well documented, but what we don't know and where Mark and also Claire, your research come in so strongly are what that actually means for people and how they manage the risk. Another reason people move is economic well-being. People generally move away from risk and towards opportunity. And those climate change impacts, even though we may not label them as climate change impacts, at the end of the day, families need to put food on the table. And that's what they tell us in the communities all over the world. And then the third is social cohesion, lawlessness, conflict. Some of you may, may be doing either practice or research in those areas. And drought, heat, other water scarcity, don't make it easier. Some of the data, and this is the last point that I'd make and then I'll pass it on, but um, some of the data that we gather in, for example, in the Sahel, transhumance is part of a traditional lifestyle. It's very much part of local economies across the Sahel. And over the past years, we've noticed that herders are moving their herds to find water and grass up to a month earlier and they're, they're departing later. And that brings the, the cadence and the cycle um, into conflict with farmers. If you have a herd going across a field where your crops are just beginning to grow, it's not coordinated like it used to be. And that leads to tension. So we see these kinds of patterns in the way people move um, and, and in the, both the temporal and spatial patterns in the data. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that, Coco. Um, and so what I'll do is quickly go on to Mark as well to get his view from, especially from an academic sort of background. So Mark, can you can you tell us what you see as the key areas uh, for the research community to address in the coming um, five to 10 years? Sure, thanks. Thanks, Mikai, and thanks also for inviting me here today. It's great, great to be here. Um, I think before before answering your question, and I'll just scoop for a few, 
few things. And I think, you know, you both rightly highlighted the multi-causality of mobility of migration. And I think, although we're talking about um, climate and migration, it's important to recognize that almost all mobility is driven by multiple causes. And it's, very, it's a very complex phenomena. So we need to be a little bit careful in directly attributing too much emphasis, if you like, on climate change as the as a primary driver of much um, much mobility. Mobility, of course, is also very ubiquitous. We're a mobile world, and I think one of the other areas that maybe we, we often fall into the trap of is thinking that we're pr primarily a sedentary population. I think all across the world, people, people are moving and recognizing that fact is important. And the, the third thing that I'd like to highlight is that mobility and mobility outcomes are strongly socially differentiated. So you can have um, the same drivers can result in very different mobility behaviors with very different outcomes for two people that are living um, cheek by jowl with each other. So recognizing, if you like, the equity implications of mobility is also important. And then lastly, having said that, mobility is multi-causal, I think it is important to recognize that climate change is going to become ever more important in terms of influencing mobility patterns. So the IPCC, for instance, just concluded um, through their, their most recent assessment that one degree C rise in temperature will increase the risk of displacement by about 50% for flood-related events. Um, similarly, uh, if we fail to mitigate, so if we sort of carry on roughly on the trajectory that we are, then the temperature increases that we're likely to see will mean that one to three billion people living in the world by 2080 to 2100 will be experiencing temperature rises faster than at any point in the last six millennia. So these are incredibly significant biophysical drivers of change which will influence the stresses that people experience, that will influence their livelihoods and result in maybe disruptive mobility patterns, increased mobility. So having said all of that, uh, I guess three kind of priorities for research that I see, um, and I've tried to think a little bit in terms of where are there significant knowledge gaps, where is there real scope to make a contribution or address those knowledge gaps, and then if we do, uh, hopefully there would be quite significant policy implications following on from that. So I think the first one is understanding what successful um, mobility as adaptation looks like. So obviously there's been a burgeoning literature over the last 20 or 30 years, which has been focusing on climate change and mobility, climate change and migration. But I think a key area for research over the next five or 10 years is really trying to evaluate where that is successful and where that is unsuccessful and why. And then within that, you can start to explore issues around uh, different spatial and temporal scales. So maybe something that looks adaptive in the short term might become maladaptive in the long term. Something that's adaptive for a household might be maladaptive or might have quite significant negative consequences for a community um, or a city or a nation, for instance. So I think that's the first thing. Secondly, um, despite the balance starting to shift, I think there's still been, uh, I would argue, an overemphasis on international mobility. So focusing on mobility within countries, internal migration, um, international mobility tends to draw the eye, particularly when you look at migration from the global south to the global north and all of the 
I guess, the kind of narratives, the xenophobia, I would argue, that's kind of tied up in that. Um, and I think focusing on internal migration, which is much more significant as a driver of change, much more significant in terms of how cities grow, much more significant in terms of um, the changing face of, of rural areas. So focusing on internal migration is important. Um, I was going to talk about immobility, but you covered that in the introduction. So I think the other thing that I'd say relates to um, data. I think uh, something you'll be very knowledgeable about, uh, Coco. I think COVID showed that we often have lots of data, but that data isn't necessarily quite fit for purpose. So it maybe measures the wrong thing. It maybe operates at a different time scale. It's maybe not in an accessible format. So I think trying to make sure that the data that we're generating, and I think particularly in relation to internal mobility, which is much more invisible. If you think about census, that is much worse at collecting data on internal migration. Um, so trying to design our data collection, data analysis systems to enable us to much better understand how people are moving and why, where they're going to, with what implications, I would say would be a really, if we are able to address that, that would be uh, quite a significant um, benefit for us to tackle issues around adaptation moving forward. So I'll stop there. Yeah, really, really appreciate that, Mark, especially your three um, areas and now it will, it's four. So that, that's really good to have all of those um, and we can discuss further in the Q&A. Um, but I want to move quickly on to Sarah, who's um, on, online. Um, so Sarah, from the, your vantage point at the Global Center for Climate Mobility, um, what are the important issues that we need to focus on, including particularly from the urban perspectives, um, but also taking into account the differences between the regions um, you um, are working with. So over to you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for having me and apologies for not joining you in person. That would be lovely. Um, I'm uh, calling in from New York and it's a pleasure to be with all of you. Um, in response to your question, I think the fundamental um, problem that we're trying to address is how do we preserve and support people's agency in the face of the climate crisis and increasing climate risk? Um, how do we do that, especially in the places, the regions of the world that face the greatest challenges um, and have maybe more limited capacities? Um, in our, From our perspective, Anticipation is pretty key to agency. So being able to prepare for what's coming, having an understanding of what likely impacts will look like um, helps people um, weigh their options, understand their options and what they can or cannot do, both individually household level, but also collectively. Um, so what we are trying to do is use projections um, of future climate mobility, as well as research in communities that are already experiencing climate impacts today and, and are considering moving or are moving um, in that context to start a conversation um, around what the future could hold, um, what climate mobility uh, how, how climate mobility fits into what we call adaptation journeys. So whether people are moving or not, there will be an adaptation journey if you are exposed to climate extremes, if you're exposed to climate hazards. 
some things will change, <laughs> even if for people who stay in place. Um, and so how do we support um, communities, countries in shaping that adaptation journey based on data and evidence? That's what we're trying to do. What we're observing as a challenge is localizing that data and evidence. So making it really relevant for the decision makers in a specific context. And we know that oftentimes the data and evidence is uh, not available where the greatest impacts happen. So we work mainly by fostering partnership and trying to see who can bring what to the table. So we have you know, the best available data, the modeling capacity, the uh, visualization capacity so that data can actually be understandable for non-experts and can be presented to a community that may have to make decisions. So how do we bring these different pieces of expertise together and create decision-making tools that can help a city leader or that can help a national government um, have that conversation with their people about what's the adaptation journey? Are people moving in? Are they moving out? What does that mean for us? How do we respond to that? Um, that's the kind of process we're trying to facilitate. Um, Mark mentioned that we are um, looking in a lot of contexts at internal migration, not everywhere. Um, but so that puts city leaders at the front line. And you mentioned the urban dimension. Um, they often you know, are not in a position to A, even know who's in their city right now necessarily, who will be coming to their city and what the climate impacts look like really for their local territory. Um, so there's work on all fronts, I think, to um, better understand um, who is in the city right now. And, and there's good work going on um, from the Slum Dwellers International, um, others who have done um, profiling of displaced populations, um, looking into projections of future urban growth. We have done some of that modeling, um, but there can be improvement to, to that. But we have projections of like what cities can anticipate in terms of people moving in or out. Um, and the climate hazards, locali lo localizing the projections of climate hazards through local data collection. Um, that needs to be combined with planning and capacity for planning as well as localizing financing. Um, and we're working on localizing financing for the Pacific region right now um, through a community climate impact fund. Um, but that is one pilot and we need much more of this kind of interventions in other regions of the world. Sorry, the last point was which regions. We're working in Africa, Latin America and Caribbean and, um, and the Pacific right now. And I can speak a little bit more to those contexts later. Uh, that, that, thanks a lot for that, Sarah, uh, and, and we look forward to those examples as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll go quickly on to Claire. Um, drawing on your, your work um, on labor migration and the green transition, uh, what challenges um, and, as I hope, opportunities um, are you seeing in that space? Thanks, Nikai. I mean, it's obviously not a surprise to anyone that, you know, we do see this as a huge challenge 
I think everybody is conscious we need to have a massive kind of overhaul of all, a lot of our critical infrastructure. Lots of countries have very ambitious targets and very rapid timescales. And, you know, we know workforce is critical for delivery. I think it's been a bit of a neglected issue. It's not really been on the COP agenda in any detail, except for in recent years. Um, the UK is actually a good example. The Climate Change Committee here, they only did their first kind of detailed workforce report for net zero transition last year. So it's really kind of, it feels still quite new on the agenda in practical terms. And I think the challenge is clear if you just look at some of the numbers. So if you look at the numbers of workers, we need to do this. So the EU has a solar strategy and they talk in terms of unprecedented skills shortages, needing about 500,000 additional workers. Germany has um, its own estimates of over 200,000 workers for wind and solar. If you look at the UK retrofitting, decarbonizing buildings aspect, they, they're talking 120,000 to 230,000 additional workers by 2030. The US needs a million more electricians. You know, Australia has an electrician shortage, a solar PV installer shortage. And, you know, the list we could go on. And if you want to see numbers, CGD have a really good blog on this. And some of ODI's research has similar numbers. Um, CGD also has a recent report in January that came out with a lot of this in too. So we know there are significant labor shortages in these countries. They're countries with tight labor markets, aging societies. It's not going to look better five years from now. It's going to look worse. And we did our recent work actually in UK and Ireland. I mean, I'm in the Europe team, so that's where we've been focusing of late. And it was actually very interesting when you talk to people out there in the public sector and the private sector, there is really big concern about workforce. And Ireland was quite emblematic example, actually, because their retrofitting strategy is very, it's a very good national plan. They've got a great delivery body. They've got very significant increase in financing, good consistent policies, consumer demands through the roof, all really positive. Every single person I talked to universally said, labor is our single biggest barrier to meeting our targets. And they are very clear. So this is where the opportunity comes in, Mikai, not to be negative. Um, from the very beginning, when ODI colleagues who were in the climate team, who really led work on this, the, the concept they put forward was migrant workers will help us with our transition. You know, it's not rocket science. It's very clear, but it is a clear opportunity. And one of the recommendations they made in that study back in 2020 was to the migration community saying the low carbon transition is an opportunity. It gives us potential to advocate for more legal pathways. So that was very clearly our entry point. But I don't think it's just about attracting workers in. You know, this is an inclusion issue. It's a labor market integration strategy issue. You can look at your asylum seeker population, refugees and other migrants in country. And I don't think we're seeing much interesting thinking on that, really. You know, those labor market integration strategies should have a future workforce lens on them, but you don't see that very often. There's some nice examples in Berlin. You'll see nice startups doing kind of refugee training for heat pumps and solar PV you know, small private initiatives, very entrepreneurial, but not the norm, let's say. Um, we looked at this quite in depth in Ireland. Our study will come out in a few weeks. So it was a topic we tried to look in, in depth into. ODI's also looked at it in Colombia, for example. You know, the point here being, you can look at this in any geography. There's a big Venezuelan refugee community, very highly qualified, lots of engineers with energy engineer experience, particularly, but not really being tapped into for Colombia's own energy transition. So it's somewhat obvious, but I think some something we could explore. We had also 
we also kind of think there's more of an opportunity around refugee labour mobility, and this is something you know we discussed a lot with IOM UK. We've looked at this in Ireland as well with IOM's help. Um, there's lots of untapped potential within the global refugee community. If you look at the skill sets that are actually documented, lots of relevant skills. I don't think we're making enough of it. And just final word is on labour migration as adaptation. I think this is a theme that I will not cover well today. CGD colleagues would, if they were here, I know talk about this, but I do think the point that they make consistently is we need to think about how labour migration pathways can be made more accessible to those who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And I think that offers again another opportunity. It's very much a justice question. It's very much a sort of small island states, etc. And I think that that will evolve into a very interesting conversation, I hope, very soon. No, thanks a lot for that, um, Claire. I, th I think that that provided us with a really comprehensive background um, on both the side uh, as it relates to just migration, you know, in relation to climate impacts and responding to that, but then the opportunities in the context of climate action. I think you highlighted that not only for low emission development, but again, climate resilient development. So thank you to the panelists. And what I will do now is 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 take um, the the sort of my authority to kind of for the next set of questions, if we can really keep to the uh, about a two minute mark, um, as we look and change towards policymakers, I may intervene, um, sadly, you know, may interrupt you. Uh, so, but what we'll do first, um, we'll go with the, the same order. And Coco, um, how can we translate um, findings from data analyses and modeling on the impact of climate hazards on human mobility into concrete and program um, policy and programmatic outcomes. So over to you, Coco, your two minute response. Yeah, yeah and picking up on oh, so hard to be brief because it's been so good. Um, but picking up on one thing, Michai, that you said right at the beginning, we see potential futures. We're grappling with the risks and it's very uncomfortable and and existential. We also hear some of the possibilities and we want to grasp them and that is the work that we have ahead of us. How do we shape global financial flows towards a green, resilient, good future? And I think that's that's the work for all of us. So an example, we're finding from our displacement data. And just a shout out to my colleagues online and also Nikki and you also here, not to mention everyone, but we're finding correlations between solutions to displacements um, that make an investment case. I don't want to be too cliche about terms like that because this is uncomfortable topics that we're talking about. But for example, we find unsurprisingly that investments in adequate shelter and housing that does bring in what, what Sarah had mentioned about cities have a high correlation with positive outcomes for communities who have been uprooted, IDPs, for example, um, and helping people get rooted again and get back on the pathway for what they consider a good life. Investment in skills and jobs and certificates. Similarly, for those IDP communities, investments like that help raise the standard at least to about the level of their host communities it's not all the way there but it's a start getting kids back in school 
if you've been displaced, there's a lot of uncertainty. Will you go back? Will you stay? And not easy to find answers to those questions. But the more that we can focus on where do we make the investments to help people who have experienced the biophysical and other disruptions that climate change impacts can bring, the more stability will will bring to the entire society. So that's an example of how data can be almost like a beacon to help show parts of the story. And we have a lot of work ahead of us. For those of you in this work, um, you will not be bored. This is we will be building now from now on. Yeah. No, I love that, Coco, and I hope policymakers around the world are hearing um, hearing that that call and the, the power of data. Uh, so I think then quickly as well to Mark, um, given the majority of mobility is internal, as we have highlighted within countries, um, what should be the focus of policymakers? So what would be your two minute elevator pitch to your minister you know, on this? <laughs> my, yeah. my two minute elevator pitch, yeah. I see your, your... You're hammering the two minutes. <laughs> I'll, probably, I'll probably use up 10 seconds of my two minutes now. So, okay, uh, I had three priorities, but I'll stick to two in line with the two minutes. I think uh, priority number one would be engage with mobility as an issue. And I don't just mean in terms of migration policy or even in terms of adaptation policy, but thinking about all of the different ways in which mobility has a potential to impact upon a country's development trajectory, upon a way a city might grow or not grow, upon the rural areas. Mobility is generally invisible within all of those planning processes. It's something which is generally not, uh, it's not prioritised. Um, as I've said, there's still very much a sedentary bias. So actively engaging with mobility to see what the opportunities are to drive economic growth, whilst at the same time helping to address vulnerability in terms of populations, helping to support adaptation. So that would be priority number one. Priority number two, then, relatedly, is being clear about what outcomes you're looking for. And this kind of relates to what I was saying earlier, is understanding what you want to achieve. Is it that you're looking to make uh, you'll make cities more resilient? Is it that you're looking to maybe increase the well-being of the migrant population? Is it that you're looking to help make mobility safe and orderly and people can move with dignity? Is it that you're looking to make rural environments more adaptive, more viable? What outcomes do you want to achieve in any of those kind of different thematic areas or geographies, and what role does mobility play? Two priorities. There you go. No, I appreciate, appreciate that. Yes, and um, oh, was it? Really good. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that, Mark. Uh, and and uh, if I was a minister, you would have gotten your funding. So well done. Um, so uh, Sarah, uh, turning to you online, um, how, uh, sorry, help us. Uh, break down um, a bit further for policymakers sitting at different levels in different regions, um, and how should policy responses differ across different contexts or so context-specific policy making, especially in mobility. So over to you for for your two minutes here. In two minutes, <laughs> um, um, maybe. So I think there are three buckets up I'll bucket it in three buckets of kind of like policy um uh making that that are relevant across regions but maybe with different weight in each region 
Um, I think the first bucket relates to merging the adaptation and development agendas and, and policies. So how do we um, you know, move forward understanding that you won't have development without adaptation and adaptation without development. Um, and I think especially in Africa, where a lot of the movement is internal and not cross-border, at least um, to according to what we have found, and I think what others have found in research and what is projected to happen, will uh, a lot of the, um, you know, fundamentals will remain extremely important, health, literacy, um, but also it was mentioned, I think, in the chat, issues of land and water governance. Um, and obviously, Claire spoke to this, issues of skills and jobs for young people, especially. Um, so there is this policy agenda um, that uh, really is a new in a way. <laughs> but as Mark mentioned, the question is then, how do we integrate mobility? What does the social protection system look like that accounts for people maybe straddling between urban and rural areas um, and, and having um, a presence in both uh, locations? Um, the second bucket is around migration and displacement policies. Um, and when we go to a context, for example, like um, the Caribbean um, and Latin America, I expect that we will see more cross-border movements also driven by climate impacts. Um, by other factors as well. Um, and so we do, again, have, I think, an existing toolbox, both in the Global Compact on Migration and the Global Compact on Refugees, um, uh, in existing instruments around IDPs. But there, again, is a question around how do we use that toolbox and what are the existing legal gaps or, um, around migration and internal displacement, especially, um, that we need to work on to have a more effective response. And then the, the third bucket, um, and this is particularly relevant in the small island states context, um, Caribbean and Pacific, um, but not only there, right, relates to the questions of relocation of whole communities um, where we have currently different forms of guidance, but no real international agreement or, or um, instrument that speaks to that. Um, and and we and we have this rising question of continued statehood um, for some of the countries that are really facing existential threat due to sea level rise. Um, so those are three big buckets, and um, I I think my two minutes are up. But we can maybe speak a little bit more around different levels of governance. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Just tried to make sure that we can get some Q and A time because I think that the crowd, looking mm -hmm. at the crowd, everybody wants to to engage as well with the panelists. So thanks a lot for that, um, Sarah. Uh, so over to you, Claire, for the kind of the final word on on the, this segment. Um, would you say policymakers are already thinking about labor migration to support a more rapid and green transition, as you were highlighting? And where should they start um, if they are thinking about how to enable migrant worker contributions in sectors that are critical to the low carbon transition? And I'll throw in their climate resilient as well. Okay. Over to you, Claire. Thanks, Mackay. I mean, I think our politicians thinking about it and policymakers, I would say, with a few exceptions that are quite notable, no, not really. Um, obviously, there's a lot of workforce forecasting and planning going on, but I don't think the migration community is really inside the room and at the table when that is happening. I think the key question, do our immigration policies or our migration partnerships, you know, are they fit for purpose in terms of enabling and preparing skilled migrant workers for green sectors? 
I don't think that question's really being asked in any systematic way. Germany might be a, an exception to this. You know, there's very high level recognition of the need for migrant workers to meet their green targets. They have some, some concrete initiatives and partnerships, such as the solar partnership with India that they have, also an agreement with Colombia um, for electricians, for example. India is proactively looking at green skills emigration, which is interesting. CGD's new report has a nice chapter on that. So some are looking at it, but in terms of where to start, I think there's two key things. Firstly, I would say you need to recognize this is a really a global challenge in terms of the level of skills shortages. And this has certain implications, I think, for how you think about it. I mean, the first thing is, do expect to see really big competition for workers because that will happen. We have already seen, you know, small anecdotes in, in certainly in ODI reports and CGD reports. You can see Australia and Ireland are both sending delegations to the UK to source electricians, for example, which is very interesting. More of that will happen. All of the data is telling us that there is a, a global, you know, we need to increase the global stock of green skilled workers overall. Um, and that does mean collaboration, it means skills mobility partnerships, it probably means global skills partnerships, the GSP model specifically, that um, I know CGD is looking at very closely. But I think because it's a shared challenge and green skills are new skills, that we need to probably start thinking about multi-country collaborations for those kinds of partnerships to really increase the stock overall. The second key thing I would say is you need to look at this by sector because there are really our specificities and there are specific challenges. When we looked at, did our research in the UK and Ireland, we chose retrofitting quite purposefully. Firstly, because obviously emissions reduction of decarbonizing buildings are very, very significant. You know, there are a very high percentage of countries' emissions. But we also did it because it's a labor intensive sector and activity. And we also did it because it was the construction sector specifically. Now, this is a sector, if you think about it in the European panorama, it has chronic labor shortages. It's in the top 10 list for um, shortage occupations across Europe. Lots and lots of construction roles are in that. Also, you need to remember this is very much mid-skill and closer to elementary level skills we're talking about. So you're talking about plumbers and electricians, insulation operatives, glazers, carpenters, roofers. You know, it's that kind of trade that you need for low carbon heating and energy efficiency. Now, um, that is not a high-skilled, high-wage job. And CGD's research echoes the same thing. You know, they looked across sectors and found, again, there is no bias in a green-skilled job towards high-skill, high-paid. Now, if you think as a migration community, what does that mean? That has very specific implications for the migration mm -hmm. policies. We have an immigration system in most Western countries that are highly biased towards high-skill, high-paid. We don't you know, in theory, we don't want mid-skill or low-paid. So this is a real problem. You know, this mismatch between labor market demand and our visa policies is already a massive problem and is causing huge negative consequences in terms of irregular migration. But I think it's also actually a, a big hindrance in terms of making our immigration systems work for the green transition. I think that we're not acknowledging that. To me, that is a conversation that we're not having. And it was actually quite interesting in the research we did in Ireland that this was the biggest blind spot that we found with the people we talked to. The government would say, yes, we want immigration. We want migrant workers in construction. We're very open to it. Politically, they're very open to it. But when they went out and did their international recruitment campaigns, what they're targeting are high-skilled professional construction occupations. And the reason, and they explained to me very clearly, they said, but that's how our immigration system works. They have a frame behind their immigration system that drives them to do that. So that, to me, is the serious barrier we need to overcome. 
really appreciate that, Claire. So I, I think I think we're we're now at the the point where we're moving to to get to as practical as possible, um, taking into consideration all that context, all that framing for policymakers, right? And so for our final round of questions, I want us to look at how we can best help policymakers make sense of all of this that, that that we just discussed and highlighted there and also to delve into what collaborative actions can help us move forward um, so coco um, given the breadth of this this theme this topic perhaps um, we can focus on the priorities uh, for action from the iom's perspective um, what trends are you seeing that require special attention and should translate to the most urgent action right now. Okay, so broadly, it echoes very much what you were saying, Claire. Our data is for three things. It's data for action because we work so much in emergency settings, but also to deliver solutions. I've made that case about data that kind of points towards investment. Mm -hmm. um, and then the data for foresight. And on that, I would maybe highlight what we're doing right now with IOM's data is contributing a coherent, large scale, meaning large geographic scale picture of how a population movements across the globe. So it's multi-country. Um, we're looking at what drives population movements. And I mentioned those by physical, including um, climate, related and weather, um, economic well-being, and then the social cohesion, as well as conflict. And creating that coherent view that countries can then look at together and say, oh, I see, here's the patterns, here's why. We often say, as both of you, you said and Sarah, we're very aware of some impacts and not aware, as aware of others. Migration is part of our global metabolism. It's how society works as part of it. And becoming more clear about that, the push and the pull. And if this happens, what can we expect over here? That's really important. Demographics, labor supply, labor needs are definitely part of that. On the practical things, um, again, and this will be the last thing, and then I'll go over to you. But, um, I think, again, we've been really used to thinking about climate change imp impact as something which they are very hard, but very far away. Now climate impacts are here, they're unfolding, they will accelerate. Um, and I mean, frontline communities know better than anyone. And now we need to think, all right, what are the patterns? How do we sequence action? How do we drive investment? Um, how do we do all of the things that the first global stock take that you and others helped deliver? How do we actually materialize a future that we want to see? And that is both exciting, it's also daunting, and um, very specific things, finance, legal arrangements, cooperative agreements with employers to meet certain needs, Nine out of 10 agricultural workers in this country are foreign born, nine out of 10. That is a tremendous benefit for those who live here and eat food. I think it's all of us, um, but also um, a potential vulnerability point. So just being more clear with the data that we have and having as much as we can a really clear, transparent, 
conversation at the table, also with communities. Those are the things that now happily we can do and we will do increasingly because now we're building the future. Climate change is here, the impacts are here, now is building time. Appreciate that, Coco. Really clear about the priorities for action there. And so I'll then quickly turn over to Mark. Um, given what we want with adaptation and development planning that was highlighted earlier, to support people on the move, as, as Coco was highlighting, those remaining behind and receiving um, communities, a big agenda, what are your um, priorities for action with that setting? Super. Uh, okay, so I think, uh, I mean, I, I did have design better evaluative tools as a priority for action, but I, I think possibly we, we don't have evaluative tools even. So I think trying to, trying to, if you like, institutionalize, regularize the way in which we evaluate and understand what's happening, I think would be very important. There's a clear unmet demand for evidence to enable policymakers to make effective decisions around investments, around mobility, around adaptation. And it's very difficult for people to make those decisions when they're operating in a bit of a, a black hole in terms of knowing what works and what doesn't work. So I think really trying to push forward on that agenda would be a, a critical priority for me. I think the second thing I would look at is around trying to challenge some of the unhelpful narratives that seem to go hand in hand with climate migration, climate mobility. I think beyond, uh, you know, beyond the kind of the floods of migrants moving from, I don't know, maybe Ethiopia to the UK or what have you, but even to just try and help people to think about it in maybe in a slightly more complex way. So to try and get past some of the simplistic assumptions that people tend to make, if this happens, then this follows. Um, and you know, you could do that through maybe supporting journalists to report better on climate change and migration, engaging with policymakers to develop plausible scenarios that include migration within their kind of development scenarios to enable us, them, to have a conversation about what are the benefits of this, but also what are the drawbacks. I think too often we try to paint a, an overly positive picture. So I think having conversations around some of the trade-offs, some of the synergies, if, if we have migration that looks like this, what does it mean for adaptation? What does it mean for development? I think that would be really, really helpful. Um, and then I think recognizing currently that we're moving away from our more broadly at a global scale. We're moving away from our sustainable development goals. So uh, it's a it's a it's a horrible thing to think about that partly because of climate change, partly for, for other reasons. But we're we're less likely to achieve our SDGs now than we were maybe five years ago or 10 years ago. So a significant reason for that is because of climate change and the deepening effects of climate change we're not yet on track to hit our paris agreement targets so the situation is not going to get better but going to get worse so in light of that fairly kind of dire global picture what do we need to do to develop effective um, development responses that recognize this situation and recognize what's likely to happen as a result of it which will include i think more more mobility more migration so Again, thinking around, I mean, you mentioned resilient development, so thinking around what are the ways in which we can support development 
which both uh, is equitable but also climate resilient. That mark um, some good priorities as well. So quickly as well, turning over to you, Sarah, on land, um, thinking of the great need for joining forces on this agenda. Um, where do you see the main opportunities for action of a more collaborative nature? Over to you, Sarah. Thanks. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much what we're doing, <laughs> trying to catalyze action of a collaborative nature. Um, so I think in terms of the priorities that we see, it's still, I think, awareness raising, um, working with governments, but helping them really start a conversation within their societies um, with different stakeholders. So we start in our work at the regional level, bringing different UN partners, regional organizations, but also various other stakeholders together, but driving then to work with governments and ultimately also with cities to have that awareness raising and conversation based on data and evidence. Um, second step, I think, is then how do we design decision-making tools that really can support policymaking very concretely. Um, and again, like different levels with data that's relevant for the specific context. Um, and I think the third uh, issue that we're working on is the kind of coalition building across these different contexts. And how do we mobilize around specific priorities where there can be political um, consensus? Um, at the moment, we're pushing on the front of sea level rise um, and the threats that that poses um, across the world. And uh, I think there may be other issues that arise where this global coalition building is possible and we can see, um, you know, uh, progress, not not just um, at the on the policy front, but also on the normative front. Thanks a lot for that, Sarah. Um, so I think the the last um, intervention uh, goes to Claire. Um, and what immediate actions, um, whether reforms to the same immigration policies that we're just highlighting or other actions, um, would you call for to harness the potential of migrant workers in support of climate action? I mean, I think this is an area where immediate action is actually really, really feasible right now. I mean, the first thing I would say is when you do your green workforce planning, and especially if you're in a tight labour market context, I think it's quite poor to assume that your domestic workforce will just help you meet all your targets and you'll be fine. So the first thing is just consider immigration policy from the outset. And I do think that means analysing your immigration policy from a sectoral perspective, as I said, you know, if you need really big numbers of solar installers, you need to think specifically how your visa policies enable or hinder that. So just address your blind spot head on. And of course, that does mean reforms to visa policies. I mean, things that we have recommended already, for example, in the case of the UK, we talked about the creation of a net zero workforce visa as a special category. So this is essentially putting it on a par with health and social care, which is already a special category here here, which I think is symbolically really useful, but actually, you know, arguably dramatically necessary given the numbers in the net zero workforce plan. Uh, that we need and of course then we want to do things like lower visa fees, you know, tailor your fees around that do some quite pragmatic thinking. In our Ireland study, which will be released soon, we have a number of very specific visa reforms that we're recommending i'll not list them now. 
Um, I think we've come to the conclusion also that countries need to think a lot more about visas for vocational trades, which is a bit of a neglected area. So those are also things to think about. So basically, there's a lot of space for innovation, I think, here and change. Um, we'd also say think a lot more deeply about your migration partnerships. You know, where are you going to build your pipeline of skilled workers? The same way we've seen for two decades with health workers, let's apply this thinking now to the green transition. Now there are countries like India very keen to make partnerships. And there's a very interesting little nugget of information in the CGD report about Vietnam. It has a big underemployed solar PV workforce, which, you know, who knew? And so that's very interesting. You know, these are facts that countries should know. Um, I think for the European Union particularly, they need to think a lot more about the green workforce for construction across Europe. And there the partnerships might be with accession countries, you know, EU neighbourhood type agreements. But we, we need to see a lot more proactive thinking basically on this. Um, and then, of course, you come to the question of mutual benefit. For those in the migration community used to the partnerships discussions, they know all about this. Um, we need to always have that core principle in mind. I think one of the most interesting things about the green transition is that you can do that so nicely. You know, if you think about the need for heat pump installers in the US and in Europe, um, and then think about the need for air conditioning and ventilation specialists in Africa, Asia, Latin America, you know, and obviously that's going to be a dramatic need uh, in terms of, you know, just public health risk. That is, from an industry perspective, that is the same skill set, you know, heating engineers, ventilation, air conditioning, that's the same category. So you can imagine a very interesting skills partnership program that combines that skill set and does things that are beneficial for countries of origin and countries of destination. Um, and when we talk in Europe, particularly about migration and development and migration management and the huge increase in European budgets that are going towards migration and development kind of thinking, this is the overlooked issue, you know, and there is a big win here to be had in terms of skills and job creation and income and climate, and yet it's just not really being done. And I guess just final word here, and it's just ethical recruitment. I don't want this to be overlooked. I fear that we will easily overlook it. I don't think we can strategically plan to increase the migrant worker presence in any of our key industries if we don't put that front and center. And I think policymakers need to take that very seriously, especially when we talk about mid-skill, lower-paid jobs. So the call here would be, if you are going to take any immediate action, then the trade unions, the civil society groups, the migrant groups, they have to be at the table. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that, Claire. So, and thanks to the amazing panelists for their, their great responses to the questions. Um, I have, before we open up the floor, just one uh, quick question to our um, colleague, um, Helen from C, um, CDG, um, as it relates to uh, this new category. Um, so given that a new category um, a protection category for people affected by climate change is likely not to be possible. How can labor migration pathways be made more accessible to those most vulnerable to climate change? And I think Helen um, is online. So Helen, I... oh. oh, okay, okay, so it's...
I think there is you, all of the thinking that we've just discussed, you can apply yeah. to the small island states. And you, you know, it's the same thinking, it's the same kind of concept behind it, right? You just need to actively be offering those legal pathways and opportunities. But I, so I do think as a, as a, it's an open, you know, situation where that could be done. Um, I think that the, the discussions that Tuvalu is having, the agreement with Australia, is an interesting example, except of course it's not really a labour migration pathway, it's more of an agreement that gives a pathway generally. And I'm interested to know why it's not a labour migration pathway, you know, maybe, maybe it's better the way it is, right, because it's open, it's an open basis, it's a lottery system, they have a specific number of places. It's not a humanitarian visa and it's not a labour pathway, it is just literally an entrance that people can apply for through the lottery. But I understand that there are quite difficult security conditions that people, there's sort of some controversy about security aspects of the agreement. Um, so, you know, there are other elements there. But I do, yeah, I do think there's a lot of scope for this. It could well be happening. I mean, are there small island states that are developing labour migration pathways around green transition type sectors and industries? I actually don't know the answer to that. My sense is that, well, two quick things. You'll hear, you had mentioned, Claire, there's other analogies. They're not exactly the same, but analogies in building um the the right types of workforce in health or others and i know that some of um for example new zealand or australia or take other countries just to name a couple do have those types of visa programs targeted towards police education um, nursing all kinds of things like that and my guess is there would be just lots to learn. One thing I wanted, again, just tipping the hat, Mikhail, because we're all big fans of you, um, but some of those who helped develop the loss and damage fund and funding arrangements, um, in addition to a fund which a lot of people paid a lot of attention to, there's also a high level dialogue. And I think it's as part of that that migrant voices and refugee voices have been included. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, because where my mind went is there's almost a mapping that a think tank could do about where are the opportunities to raise the perspective of those who may have a lot of value to add to the conversation, link it up with additional perspectives like what you're talking about, workforce development, and bring that to forums where countries are listening, because countries um, typically are tasked with the regulation and making sure how these big agreements go. It seems like there are opportunities for linking there that could be really, um, in not too much time, start creating at least analogies, because countries look at what others are doing and they say, how did you do that? And can very quickly then get to scale, in theory. But the, the connections would need to be made. I don't know, from your experience, since you helped write some of these things. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I think, just long story short, that dialogue is one of the, the pathways in. Uh, it's a high-level one with UN agencies, multilateral development banks, uh, the, the Bretton Woods, etc. But but I think the, the most important point is that you can you can have this, finally, this, this interaction with complementary complementarity and, co and, and, co and coordination, you know, amongst them and how, and how they approach different things. And it was acknowledged in that decision itself 
the importance of national institutional arrangements. Now you build those up and, and obviously interacting with um, the, the local migrants from that perspective um, and, and how they and how they're internal. So Fiji is a really good example of having, you know, a specific um, a specific trust fund just for relocation. Uh, and, and they're pioneering that that space in the context of, of relocation, in the context of climate change. So uh, I would just like to say as well, I think that um, uh, that we can bring in um, Helen, actually. Um, so Helen, uh, are you online? Uh, just speak quite quickly on this. Yes, I hope you can hear me. Ah, uh, yes, oh, actually, wonderful. yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much for the presentation so far. I really appreciate your insights. I think just two quick things to add. So Firstly, as has already been mentioned, regional free movement will play a critical role, in, particularly in the Pacific and the Caribbean, but also more broadly. And there is a lot that actors can do to support the expansion of regional free movement and overcoming the various different barriers that are preventing it from having the adaptation impact that it could have. And the second point is that if countries are looking to expand labour migration pathways, potentially for green skills or nursing or other sectors, they could think about targeting particularly climate vulnerable countries and areas within those countries. So doing so can obviously help that migration, particularly through remittances and other transfers, can contribute to adaptation in those areas. But again, thank you very much for your feedback. Actually, Helen has said it so very clearly. She has made me think a bit more clearly on this. I mean, and, and Helen's colleague, Sam, I think, had mentioned this to me at one of our last meetings. Um, the expert council on migration in Germany, I'm sure some people have seen this, they have released a sort of recommendation proposal for the German government to consider in terms of issuing humanitarian visas to very climate at risk places and actually creating a kind of climate risk index and selecting certain countries and offering a certain number of humanitarian visas. And I think the concept that Helen has just very clearly proposed you know, goes very much alongside that. Why would Germany not merge that with their labour migration thinking because they are actually have lots of active partnerships around healthcare and as I mentioned green skills you know they could very much overlap that thinking but I don't know if anybody's talking about that. Can I just add in one thing before yeah, we move on? Absolutely. I think I mean it's more more sparked by the by the healthcare analogy I think drawing on migration literature they're obviously quite significant issues with uh, countries like the UK exploiting healthcare workers from other global south countries and depleting the resources that they have. So they invest a lot in training and education to uh, help develop a healthcare workforce within their countries. Those uh, nurses, doctors, whomever, then get uh, pulled. Um, they move to other countries in the global north. So I think they're I think we've just got to be cautious. I mean, you mentioned um, ethical, I think it was ethical green transitions, that we don't kind of perpetuate some of the inequalities that we're seeing already, just in a different, you know, in a different form. So with the green transition and all of the urgency that that entails, we've just got to be careful that we try to ensure that we're transitioning in the right way and not say sacrificing the development of certain countries to enable uh, the UK, for instance, to then have a more um, fit, fit for purpose workforce. Appreciate that. So, no, thanks. And uh, so 
thanks a lot to the colleagues on the panel. So I, what I'll do is open up the floor quickly uh, to Q&A. And if you could give, especially in the room, if you could give your name and your affiliation, and as well if it's directed to a specific panelist. And I'll probably take about three in the room because we have quite a few already online. Uh, so I'll just go to my, my colleague over here and then the colleague in the front row. Yeah. So. Uh, thank you very much for this very insightful discussion. Uh, my name is Mayuresh. I'm an urban sustainability practitioner. Uh, so I have uh, one or two quick questions to uh, general panel, but specifically to Mark and Sarah, because they come from urban development perspective. Uh, talking about uh, uh, the destination cities, which receive a lot of migration, uh, have we been able to distinguish between uh, climate migrants amongst a pool of migrants, because there are aspirational migrants, there are war migrants and war refugees and distressed migrants as well. So how do we distinguish climate migrants amongst this pool? And second question is, have we ever been able to uh, evaluate and address the double precarity uh, faced by the climate migrants in cities? Because climate becomes a stress multiplier at their place of origin. And when they land up at the destination cities, the cities are not climate resilient and not prepared to accommodate them. And already the cities face a lot of climate changes like urban heat island, the constant flooding, and lots sort of uh, infrastructure challenges as well. So these migrants have been observed to face a double precarity. So have we evaluated that and how are we uh, being addressing that or able to discuss that? So these are my two questions. Thank you very much that and so just to let you know mark i'll call on you as well as sarah online but i just want to get one one more question um in in the audience uh so colleague who just returned i know you had your 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 hand up so please introduce yourself and your affiliation uh and also pinpoint to which panelists you may want to uh, I, I thank you very much for the event i am Tarek. i'm doing phd at soas uh, I'm from Bangladesh, actually. Uh, my question is about uh, when I come here, the title is says that from evidence to action, understanding climate mobility. And uh, as we know that about evidence, we are talking about that internal mobility, yeah, it's evident. But when we are talking about international mobility, as Mark says, that it's multi-causal. So, but it is admitted in different documents. For example, in 2021, UNHCR published local legal considerations for cross-border climate mobility. So they themselves admit that there are some, at least, so mostly internal. Alternatively, some are international climate mobility. But about when we think about the governance, we find it's hardly any uh, what could I say, effective or any other? So my question is, what do you think about the international climate mobility governance? We are finding some regional governance in Africa, Pacific, and Caribbean, some IDP governance in countries. But what do you think about the prospects or the current effectiveness of international protection for climate mobility? Thank you very much. No, thanks a lot for that really good question. Uh, so I probably feel that one out to to Mark uh, as well as um, Claire, if you could. Uh, oh, and Sarah as well. Okay, all right. Uh, so so Sarah and um, Mark, you have two questions. 
Uh, and I just want to throw one additional question from online uh, from our colleague from the International Organization of Migration. And we mainly talked about um, policymakers' role. Uh, but essentially, the question she, she had was, um, I would also like to know the private sector and how the private sector could become an active um, partner in the discourse for climate mobility. Uh, and I think I'd, I'd ask um, Claire as well as um, Sarah to, to answer that one. Uh, so what I'll do is go in order of Mark in the room, then Sarah, and then Claire, if you could finish out, and then we'll see if we can do a next round of questions. Please, Mark. Super, thanks, uh, Miresh Tarek, for your questions and uh, also online. Um, I mean, I guess uh, I think I think your your questions were related somewhat um, in terms of identifying a, a climate migrant, and that is a very it's a very live debate at the moment. Um, I think it's very difficult to identify a a climate migrant. There are some circumstances, I think, particularly in regard to maybe small island states, when you can, you know, you can make the case that sea level rise is, is leading to migration, although I think those cases are still very small in number. So how I, I almost think it's a, it's a fool's errand to try and identify this person is a climate migrant this person isn't a climate migrant. This person moved for economic reasons. This person moved because um, because their house was flooded, for instance. I think almost almost all migration will be a combination of different factors. So trying to pull those apart, I don't actually think gets you much further in terms of the in terms of the debate. I think. I kind of think it's a bit unhelpful. Now, obviously, that has problems in terms of climate governance and funding, because when it comes to climate change, UNFCCC, um, the COP process, there needs to be a demonstration that something has happened because of climate change, or it's a direct response to climate change. So there's a certain kind of tension there, which I think is quite, uh, I think it's difficult to resolve, which is why I think the governance for international climate migration isn't is quite nascent isn't well developed i mean it's not it's not really my area of expertise but i think i think it's kind of beset with problems partly because it's very difficult to understand who's moving and for what for what reasons um coming coming though onto your issue about uh migrants moving from one location to another location i think there's been a lot of research some of which that i've been involved in I think which has looked at often the degree of agency or choice that people have in terms of their ability to move is quite a good indicator of the the nature of the outcome that that movement will have so people that are moving under duress um, people that have less agency less choice they often uh, if you like exchange one basket of risks in one location and then they move to another location and some of those risks they carry with them, they'll still be experiencing the same structural vulnerabilities that they were experiencing. It doesn't matter whether you're in one location or another location. They might lose, say, um, they might lose some risks. If you think about maybe a stereotypical rural to urban migration, there might be less risks in an urban location associated with kind of food access, food production, but in an urban location, then there could be increased risks associated with heat stress, 
there could be in, increased risks associated with flooding potentially because they don't move to the to the to the bits of a city which are the most desirable they move to the bits of the city where there's space and those bits are typically uh much more exposed much more vulnerable anyway so um moving becoming becoming mobile doesn't uh doesn't automatically get rid of your risks i think often often unfortunately uh people just carry those risks with them and it doesn't increase their social mobility which i guess is what they're what they're kind of trying to achieve ultimately within their within their decision to migrate appreciate that mark thank you thank you um and so sarah if you could come in on the questions that i highlighted for you please thank you um tough questions <laughs> i think um on the on the point of you know, how do we distinguish those that are driven by climate versus other migrants? Mark has made the point, and I think that that's very valid of um, this being very difficult to distinguish. And I would argue in the context of internal migration to cities, it's maybe also not so important. Um, like, you know, we, we do modeling projections. And again, in the model, you can kind of isolate for climate, right? But we know that um, that obviously decisions are are um, multifaceted and, and multiple drivers are involved. And I think for cities, it's usually not so important whether somebody came for war reasons or other reasons, they're there. And um, the, the challenges within the city context are often similar, whether people came for one set of reasons or another. Um, and I think this question of how do you ensure resilience within the city context, especially also for people who may have moved there. And as Mark mentioned, move to more vulnerable or exposed areas um, is a real challenge. Um, Tarek probably would know that Bangladesh has an existing policy around this, trying to kind of um, defray uh, some of the um, movement towards uh, Dhaka um, by developing other cities as kind of more welcoming, migrant-friendly cities. Um, and this goes probably to Mark's point on evaluation, like, you know, probably to be seen whether this is a response that works. Um, definitely, I think in the African context, there's a lot of growth projected in cities that aren't maybe even cities yet. And so I do think that um, kind of planning for urbanization and looking at how do you set up places that aren't yet full-fledged cities in a way that they can grow in a more planned and um, climate resilient way is is a is a good starting point, but that obviously doesn't take away all the challenges that cities have that are already huge and still growing and where you don't have the existing infrastructure. So I, I, I do think that, that that's a real challenge and you will not probably get people to move out of areas unless there's a real opportunity where you put them. So I think one lesson that has been learned is that relocating communities away from risky areas doesn't work unless you relocate them somewhere where they still have access to the type of livelihoods that they were pursuing, where they, you know, their kids can still go to school. Um, so, so those, I think, are lessons learned that, that do exist. And the question is, are they being heeded? Um, um, Maybe last point on this, I do think it's important and we're doing this to work with cities and mayors that are sending at least the signal that the people that are coming to their city are part of their city, you know, that that don't have a policy of 
basically, um, you know, deterrence <laughs> or, you know, trying to um, um, make people that are coming um, feel unwelcome and as if they weren't part of the city. Um, and so I do think it's, yeah, important to also support city leadership uh, in the right direction um, through, by, again, working with diverse partners to see how can we make, bring data that can be useful, evidence that can be useful, um, policy support, technical support for policy and planning, but also financing. So how do you actually build coalitions of support for those cities that are leading in the right direction? Um, on the global governance piece, um, as I said, I think the, 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 the best hook, let's say, that we have at the moment is in the Global Compact for Migration, but that is only a starting point. There's some good provisions there, but it's not yet a full-fledged governance agreement and it's non-binding. Um, but we do see our efforts, at least of working across different regions, also as an effort to, you know, building a common narrative, building a common understanding of what are the issues that actually need to be governed um, and what does this climate mobility response look like. And I think it consists, as we discussed today, of, of different pieces, right? There's probably a labor mobility piece, there's a protection piece, there is an adaptation piece. So uh, climate mobility governance would really have to be multifaceted and maybe even have more the form of a kind of framework agreement where you then work out specific pieces under that, I don't know, but it's definitely, I think, um, something that is going to emerge, I think, from, you know, learning across these different contexts and identifying what are the distinct pieces that need governing and what could be um, a common understanding around those. And thanks a lot, Sarah. And I saw a lot of nodding in the room to, to, to all the answers to those questions. So really appreciate the responses from Mark and Sarah. So I think we, we have time only for um, one one last set of, of, of questions. Uh, I'm sorry to persons um, in the room because I'll probably give preference to those online and you could um, bilaterally sort of chat with the, um, the panelists. But there's a question here for you, Mark. Uh, from Peter, um, and he's saying, uh, do we have global policies and programs that can support or build climate resilience in slums um, and other deprived areas to safeguard traditional livelihoods of the most vulnerable people? So that's one. That's one for you, for you, Mark. Uh, and then in in relation to um, you, Sarah, there's a specific one uh, coming all the way from Turkey, noting that we have quite a lot of persons from different parts of the world, um, all corners of the globe right now. So a university in Turkey, and that's Ali. Uh, and he basically asked about um, data limitations, right? So how can we effectively gather data on climate migration in regions where access to commonly used data gathering techniques is limited, despite the critical importance of localizing data uh, for this topic. So that's a specific one to you, Sarah. And the last one um, for you, Claire, there's actually a question on, is it feasible uh, for the EU to integrate um, environmentally displaced persons into its policies? And there's a similar question in the context of the UK and it's reviewing its policies and how does it go about, um, how are these policies going to create 
uh, a challenge um, potentially in migration in the context of the UK reviewing its policy. So the UK is reviewing its policy, and then there's a question on the EU and how does the EU um, integrate those those persons into its policies. Uh, so I thought you'd be best place to do that. So Mark, uh, then Sarah, then um, Claire, and then we'll end off. So Mark, please go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Not. Not, uh, not one that I'm overly kind of familiar with. I mean, based on, on the little work that I have done or, or been involved in, I would say that the, the kind of policy responses will vary tremendously um, across the world. So it's not that there's a particular uh, kind of accepted international standard. Um, and then Peter also asked about, was it indigenous with regard to indigenous knowledge, have I? Yeah, traditional, Tradi traditional, traditional, yeah, of the most vulnerable um, groups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's obviously quite a powerful, powerful kind of tradition, traditional and indigenous knowledge movement um, that exists around the world to try and uh, protect and cultivate. Um, to cultivate that knowledge. Um, I kind of see it more in terms of the work that I've done in the in the Horn of Africa, working with um, pastoral communities, so not, not slums, but I think uh, there are, you know, there are efforts made to try and integrate more kind of uh, top-down sort of scientific models of understanding with traditional models of knowledge to see what uh, synergies exist there. Um, and I think as well as recognizing um, that there are, you know, the traditional knowledge is also adapting um, to the surroundings. So I think this this kind of portrayal that you sometimes see of traditional knowledge is quite sort of fossilized and not moving. Um, I think it's it's adapting remarkably quickly to the changes that are, you know, that are happening around the world, not just from climate change. Um, but in certain certain instances, and again with reference to pastoralism, then I think in some cases it's it's kind of on life support. The aspiration of of younger pastoral members to have more maybe urban kind of westernized lifestyles is quite strong. So I think at the moment, kind of understanding how that evolves, move forward is a bit is a bit of an open question. So I'm aware that I haven't quite uh, answered your question. Peter, in terms of slums, but again, I, I think it's something that is clearly very important and that we would be uh, well served by looking at further. Um, so over to you then, Sarah. Um, thank you. Can you can you um, uh, repeat the question for me? Sorry, I was listening to Mark and I'm like, um, what 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 would you like me to address? Sure, no problem. Um, essentially, how can you um, effectively gather data on climate migration in regions where access to commonly used data gathering techniques is limited, so limited sort of data collection capabilities, despite the critical importance of localizing data for this topic? So that kind of paradox, essentially. Thanks, yeah. Um, I think it goes in a similar direction to what Mark said, probably looking at how can we combine um, tools that do not rely on being on the ground, like remote sensing data. Um, but at the same time, I think the question is also, how do you capacitate people who are on the ground to collect data? Um, 
And I think there are efforts like that underway. We are looking into that in, in Tuvalu, like um, as part of kind of projects to preserve culture and heritage. How can we work with local youth and students to actually be part of that effort? Um, so I do think that, that there's possibility to look at community engagement in data collection in areas that are difficult to access and combining that with you know, data that comes from satellite imagery and um, cell phone um, tracking and things like that. So, so I I wouldn't, you know, be able to say whether that's possible everywhere, but I do think that could be a way forward. Thank you. Uh, and then over to you, Claire, for the final word. Sure. Um, I'm to pick up on the private sector question that got asked yes, earlier because I didn't do that. Um, so just really quickly on that. I mean, obviously, the private sector is a very key voice when it comes to labour migration issues. Um, they're very much at the table for workforce planning. Definitely would see them as a really important voice. It was quite interesting in Ireland that they it was it was really very much the private sector stakeholders in the consultation that made the point about the bias inherent in the system that was really problematic for them particularly for their mid-skill to lower end um, in terms of sort of elementary workers that they needed. And they felt no one was really listening to them and they really wanted to make that point. The Germany example that I gave earlier, I didn't actually say this, but the agreement that is made between Germany and India for solar in terms of, you know, reaching their workforce through, it's through the India, what's it called again officially, the Green Skills Council for Jobs. Uh, is the name of the body in India, but that agreement is between them and the Solar Trade Association in Germany. It's actually not a governmental agreement. So the private sector in Germany has just literally, as a trade association body, just said, we need these workers and we're going to go and find them ourselves, which is super interesting. Um, I think also within the concept of sort of refugee labour mobility, which we looked at in both of our case studies that we did recently, and obviously this is a bit of a new concept, and I would really encourage people to look at Talent Beyond Boundaries. They have lots of great information on their website about their programme. They work very closely with IOM on it. They've done great, a great job with um, resettling refugees to Canada through, and this is through skilled you know, labour pathways, essentially. Um, and they've got four pilot countries in Europe. Um, and when we were looking at that, the point they were making to us very clearly was the potential for the private sector to act directly without government intervention is really strong for that program. They need employers to hire. So that, that's all they need. They need the private sector at the table. And they're engaging the private sector certainly quite successfully in the UK around healthcare. Actually, that's somewhat private health, but it's become more NHS over time. So, you know, that's definitely changed. But they're doing some interesting work with Scotland, for example, with energy companies in Scotland for their green transition. So you can see the private sector role is quite significant. And what they say to us is they can do cohort hiring approaches with private sector consortiums. You know, they're really open to this. So that's a really important thing. Um, and in terms of the other questions, I think for the EU, the question was kind of what's it feasible for the EU to do, but particularly for environmentally displaced persons, I think it was. I mean, the thing there is difficult. The EU, in terms of attracting migrant workers, they're very much relying on their new talent pool initiative. And one of the criticisms of that is it's not open to migrants um, in country, so refugees, asylum seekers, etc. Um, any anyone in that category cannot apply and use the talent pool function. So it does generally just then come down to national member states policies in terms of inclusion and integration. Um, but I do think there's a lot of really specifically cities who are really interested in this and have strategies and 
quite actively in that area. I would, I don't know much about this, but you know, I've heard murmurings from places like London and Glasgow, certainly that they have, they have people looking at this and they're very interested in that agenda. So I do think we will see more. And in terms of the UK reviewing its migration policies, I assume the person is referring to this in a kind of negative direction, the, the, the urge to reduce net migration, the fear around the numbers. Um, I mean, that is, there is a lot to say about that. I mean, a lot the increase in numbers that we've seen is, is due to a mix of factors. It's due to a big increase in study visas. It's due to large numbers of Ukrainians, a lot of people from Hong Kong who've been resettled through these special pathways. It's also due to a big increase in skilled worker visas, but that is primarily driven by social care because of the new visa category and our chronic you know, crisis in social care that we have in this country. So. You know, the numbers game, I don't really like to play. I think it's like a red herring. I don't think they'll necessarily successfully bring numbers down. Although, you know, they've planted their flag and said that they want to, but they've said this so many times. They've set arbitrary targets, they don't meet them. So I kind of would ignore that kind of background noise. I think if we need this workforce, eventually we will be faced to force it, to force that issue like we have issued emergency visas for HGV drivers and I think pig farmers possibly, it, you know, we do things like this all the time. So I would say that is more likely to happen. The other thing I would say generally is just the rhetoric that we hear on immigration policy, the political narrative can be so hostile, but behind the scenes in terms of labor immigration, often there are things happening that you don't know about. So, you know, you'll be familiar with Greece and Italy and the kind of really hostile rhetoric you hear there. At the same time, quite recently in the last six months, both countries have opened new quotas for legal pathways to the tune of 300 to 400,000. You know, they're putting into quotas for different sectors, but no one will hear about that because it's the political performance that has taken front and center. So just bear that in mind, I think, when we think about the political feasibility of this question. Thank you very much, Claire, and thank you to all the panelists uh, as well, Koku, to, to leave um, for, for uh, a flight, uh, and really appreciate um, all the insights. And I do think that we have moved from evidence into a discussion on action, and so I really appreciate everyone and all the audience and the time from all over the world I have to highlight. So thanks a lot, everyone, and have a good day. Okay, bye.